All right, all right, all right. If you could make your way back to your seats, that would be fantastic because I have got a lot to share with you this morning. So please make your way back to your seats. And uh, as you're making your way back to your seats, I would share this with you as we move into our second week of this series called Reading Between the Lines, Learning How to Read the Bible in Its Context. I shared last week a couple of, uh, a couple of books that would be helpful to you. I'm going to do the same thing this week and throughout this series over the next, I think we've got four more weeks this week and then three more. But I'll be sharing different resources with you that I believe will be helpful for you as you begin to understand and learn context. One of those books, very simple book, okay, uh, very effective book, is this book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, A Guide to Understanding the Bible by uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's a great primer, okay? Remember when you were a little kid, those of you who are a little bit older, and you, you remember primers when you were in elementary school? This is a great primer primer okay i'd encourage you highly encourage you to grab that and read it okay so as we jump in here uh i want to encourage you to take out your phone right now no tricks i'm not going to play any tricks or anything um take out your phone and get your camera out okay and just hold on to it because throughout this message there's going to be a couple of times that i'm going to have stuff up on the screen and you're just going to want to take a picture of it, okay? It's not pictures of me, I promise. No, we don't want people throwing up, okay? But there's going to be information, let's put it that way. There's going to be information up on the screen you're going to want to take pictures of. So I'll just let you know ahead of time, all right? So that you can have that ready to rock and roll. All right, so if you remember, if you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, make sure you go to the website, mylcc.church, or you go to our app, you can find uh, last week's message on there. It was the beginning, the intro to this series, Reading Between the Lines. And if you were here last week, you remember that I said context is the most important thing. You remember that? You remember me saying that? Context is the most important thing. And I had a brother text me this week and kind of call me on the carpet for that. Because I actually, and he was right, because what I did was I actually took for granted that everybody would be on the same page with me when I said that. The actual truth of the matter is that the Holy Spirit, when reading scripture, the Holy Spirit is the most important thing. Asking and praying, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to your word. Open my eyes and my heart to what you're saying. That is the most important thing. The Holy Spirit's ability to speak into our lives as we read the text, bar none, the most important thing. Right beneath that is context. Absolutely, unequivocally critical, critical that you and I understand the context of what the scripture is. And I say this because it is important. It is absolutely important and critical that you and I read the Bible in its context. When it was written, how it was written, to whom it was written, why it was written, who wrote it, who received all of these different things. The context is vital to understanding this, okay? 
So, with that out of the way, I want to start off by asking a question, asking a, a very simple question. And it's a question that actually has kind of changed the way I think, and I work in conversations, and especially, uh, you know, sometimes in an interview situation. It, it's a pretty cool quote, check it out. It says this. It says, you can learn a lot about a person, not from the answers they give, but from the questions they ask. Think about that for a second. You can learn a lot about a person, not so much from the, the answers they give, but from the questions they ask. And I remember, I remember I was reading like some, I think I was reading a leadership journal or I heard a guy talking about leadership and he said this and he, and he was talking about how like in an interview process, he or, 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 or a leader that he knows, when they go into an interview and they're interviewing somebody for a position in that company, they don't pay attention so much to the answers that they get because most oftentimes the people who are applying for the jobs have the same answers, whether it's uh, in line with what is be the job is, or it's like, you know, what are your weaknesses? Well, one of my weaknesses is that I just love too much, you know, and it's those typical kind of answers that you get. And so rather than looking at the answers it gets, it's the questions that those people ask. The questions that those people ask, Okay great leaders basis because it's not just how smart a person is it's how intuitive they are and how curious that person is because asking questions leads to knowledge asking questions leads to clarity asking questions leads to wisdom right and see the thing is that a lot of us think that that, that we have to put up this idea of being strong and when I'm strong, it means I answer every question, whether I know the answer or not. If I don't know the answer, I make up the answer. And, and so being strong means I share with you all of my knowledge. That way you think I'm smart, right? But the truth of the matter is that the really wise person asks questions because they're curious. They, they don't care what other people think about whether they know the answer or not because they know they don't know the answer. They want to know. They ask questions like, well, how does that work? And they ask questions like, you know, what does that word mean? You ever done that? Like somebody uses a word that you don't know and you go, oh yeah. And inside you're going, what? And I don't even know how to spell that. And, and so the wise person, the wise person asks questions. And if that's true in, in life, if that's, if that's true that, that asking questions leads to a wiser and smarter life, then why don't we ask more questions? Why aren't we asking more questions in our relationships? Why aren't we asking more questions in our jobs? Why aren't we asking more questions, you know, why? I think it's that percep misperception we have of strength versus weakness. And I think that's true when we read the Bible as well. I think that's true when we read the Bible. As, as, as we talk about, as we move forward in this series, reading between the lines and understanding the context through which the Bible is written, we need to ask some questions. We need to ask some questions of Scripture. Two specific questions I would share with you that are critical to every time we read the Bible. Every time you open up the scriptures, 
looking at the Bible as a whole, and then specifically when we get into certain passages, or every passage of Scripture that we read, there are two questions that we should be asking. The first question is, what is important in this passage I'm reading? What is important in this passage that I'm reading? And the second question, naturally, is why is this important? Why is this important? What is important in this? And I know that a lot of us, most of us maybe in this room right now are like, I I wouldn't even know how to ask that first question. What's important in this passage? Exactly. That's why we're doing this series. So that we can begin to understand how to ask the right questions of Scripture so we can understand God better and God's love for us, His grace and mercy and compassion on us and how He created us on purpose for a purpose to not only have a relationship with Him but to impact the culture around us. And we begin to understand that better when we can ask questions like this. What is important in this passage that I'm reading? And why is it important? Can I tell you something? There is not one more word in the Bible than needs to be in there. There is no wasted words in the Bible. There are no superfluous writings in Scripture. Every word that is in the Bible is there on purpose. Whenever you read about the Philistines... There's a reason why it talks about the Philistines or the Edomites or whatever. There's a reason why it talks about that group, specific group of people. And we ask ourselves, why? When the scriptures talk about Jesus being in the desert for 40 days and for fasting for 40 days, why 40? Why was it important that Jesus, why was it important that he fasted at all? And why was it 40 days? And why did he go to the desert to fast? Those are all really good questions. But most of the time, what do we do? We just buzz right by him and go, man, if I was Jesus, I'd be hungry. I would have turned those, like, stones into a Jimmy John number 8 billy club with roast beef, you know, and lots of cheese and everything. By the way, that is my favorite sandwich if you are keeping track, okay? But we, we don't ask those questions, and, 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 and there's no condemnation here at all. Because I would venture to say that probably 97-ish percent of us here are all in the same boat. And that's why we're doing this series. So we can begin to understand why the Bible says what it says. Begin to understand it in its context. To ask these questions, what is, Im- what is important in this passage I'm reading, and why is it important? Okay? There are numbers. There are, there are Hebrew words that have different meanings than what we think. There are specific locations. The Bible is very specific in its writing. On purpose. On purpose. So, if you remember, last week we started this series about talking, learning to read the Bible in its context. And I shared with you in that moment that we were going to use this ebook that my friend Brad wrote called The Number One 
mistake most everyone makes reading the Bible. It's all about context, okay? And this is going to be um, our, this is where we're, I'm going to get most of my resources. There are things that I'm just going to straight take straight from Brad's writing. There's other resources that I'll use. There are resources that are going to put up on the screen for you that you need to make sure that you check out, okay? But this is where, this is kind of where I'm taking off from and getting a lot from. If you do not have this and you want to check it out, you can go to www.walkingthetext.com and all you have to do is put in your uh, email address there and you will be able to download this for free. It is a fantastic start to understanding context, okay? Now, if you're sitting out there and you're going, <clears throat> well, you know what, I don't have a computer, I don't have access to, you know, I can't print it out, that's okay. Elaine printed a bunch of copies of this book, and they're right back. Do we have, there, are there some back there still? Okay, great. There's, there's some back there. If you want to pick one up and you can start reading, just grab it. No charge. You can take it with you, okay? So, or you can go to, like I said, www.walkingthetext.com, okay? Now, here's the thing. As I talk about these six different uh, uh, filters that we filter context through. If you remember, there's like, there's historical, there's uh, visual, there is uh, archaeology, and three other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head. Okay, actually I wrote them down, all right? Um, historical, cultural, geographical, visual, linguistic, and literary. And I'm going to tell you right now, that we're going to go through all six of those in the next four weeks, which means we're going to double up, which means I have to talk even faster, okay? And, and, and so you're going to understand, there is no way that Doug is going to be able to tell me everything I need to know this morning about one or two different filters. You're right, I can't. That's why you should check into this book. That's why my hope and my prayer, I'm, I'm telling you right now, my hope and prayer is that on, on these Sunday mornings as we talk about these filters and, the, and what they have to do with context, that it will light a fire in you. That it'll, it'll make you hungry and excited about this. To look at these different, con these filters on context and go, whoa, I never knew that. That makes more sense. And you begin to look at it and get hungry and want to invest the time and the money and the effort to do it, okay? It is worth the investment. It is worth the sacrifice to do it. And you don't, in all honesty, to start off, you don't have to pay any money. There are different resources online that you can connect with that will get you going in context to understand context better. But my hope, my goal, my desire, my prayer is that as we talk about context, that you will begin to see, number one, that you desperately need context in reading scripture. Otherwise, you are 70% lost in what scripture is saying to you today, okay? And number two, it lights that fire of excitement within you when you begin to grasp the meaning of God's word, okay? Bless you. All right. So we move forward, okay? It's absolutely vital that we understand the Bible in context. If you were here last week, you remember me talking about Eugene Peterson and the quote from his book, Eat This Book, when he talked to a rabbi friend of his, a Jewish rabbi friend of his, who said this, who said, for us Jews, studying the Bible is more important than obeying it. Because if you don't understand it rightly, you will obey it wrongly. And your obedience will be disobedience. 
okay? Think about that for a second. For those of you who weren't here last week, I know this is, I mean, this isn't just light stuff, all right? For us Jews, studying the Bible, studying the Bible is more important than obeying it. Because if you don't understand it rightly, you will obey it wrongly, and your obedience will become disobedience. It is critical that we understand context in Scripture so that we can obey God's Word rightly. There is such a thing, and you maybe have done it as I have done it, of doing the right thing. Let me get this right. Doing the wrong thing for the right reason. Doing the wrong thing for the right reason. we got to know context in Scripture. Okay? Hey, let's pray. Father, over the next few minutes, over the next 15 minutes that I have left, which will actually probably be more 20, God, I pray that you would speak to us and challenge us, help us to know and understand what your word says so that we can obey your word and please you and help the world to see your love for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, today we're going to tackle two of those filters. The first filter is literary. The first filter is literary. And here's the thing. One of the biggest mistakes that we make as disciples is reading the Bible as a singular book. Okay? We, we have a tendency to look at it and think of it as a novel. Right? Now, this is a big novel, but we think of it as a novel, just like the Bible, a huge, thick novel with, it's just one story with, with the same characters throughout, or, or, or we read it like it's a biography, okay? And, and, and we read it in that way, that we would, the way we would read a biography, or, or maybe it's a leadership book. We read the Bible like it's a leadership book where I can get really good advice and wisdom from the Bible, but all of those things are not how the Bible is written, Okay, that's not how the Bible is. The Bible is not one genre, if you will. Let me, let me illustrate what I'm talking about, okay? If you were today to go to Barnes & Noble, okay? Now, for you younger people who shop online, this is a brick building that houses books, okay? And they sell those books out of this building. So if you were to go to Barnes & Noble... You would, you would walk inside of Barnes & Noble, and you would see that Barnes & Noble is broken up into different sections, different areas, different genres, okay? And, and so I'm going to ask you in just a second to shout out some of those genres that maybe you would find. Now, when I go to Barnes & Noble, the first place I head is to the magazine section, and I go straight almost to the history section of the magazine section. I walk by people, take a look, see what's, you know, happening with Brad Pitt and whoever he's with now, okay, and I walk past, I get to the history section. I get done with the history section in the magazine area, grab a couple of those for me, and then I go to the history section in the books, okay, and I know you're thinking, well, you're not a very good pastor, you didn't go to the Christian part. Yeah, you're right. So, I take those books and those magazines, and then I usually go to the Starbucks in there, and I just, I, you know, I'll buy something or whatever, and I'll sit there, and I'll just kind of leaf through those. So, I, my play, I love the history section of Barnes & What about you? What area, what other places, what other genres do you find when you go into Barnes & Noble? Where do you go? Biographies, okay, good. Who else? What was that? Children's books, yep, children's books. For children or grandchildren that we have, who else? What was it? Sci-fi, yep, sci-fi section, huge. What was back here? 
what was it? Oh, sports. Sports. Got you? Okay. So, so we can see there are a ton of different genres under one roof called Barnes & Noble. And the same is true in the Bible. The Bible is not one continuous novel. It is not one continuous uh, book of, you know, wisdom. It's not one big book of do-it-yourself spirituality, okay? The Bible is a number of different genres rolled up into one. It's comprised of many different writing styles. In fact, it's the 43% of the Bible is what we would call narrative. Narrative. 33%, the next largest grouping of, of writing in the Bible, 33% of it is, anyone want to take a guess? Say, you've got to say it loud. Conversation. Conversation, okay, anyone else? History? Poetry. 33% of the Bible is poetry. Who would have thought that? One out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry. Our God is not only history. Our God is not only prophecy. Our God is not only apocalypse. Our God understands the beauty and is the, the, the faithful benefit, gives the benefit of poetry within Scripture. Our God is amazing. And knowing the genre impacts how you read a book or how you read a section of the Bible. Understanding and knowing that genre makes a difference in how you read. You don't read science fiction the same way you read history, right? You don't read a Star Trek novel the same way you read a, a historical account of the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. You just don't do it that way. You, you, you read legal documents different than you read a biography. You, you read poetry different than you read a do-it-yourself book on plumbing, okay? We engage with these different genres differently, and each of those genres have their own rules on how they're to be read and interpreted, and the same is true for the Bible. We should be reading the Bible differently. You don't read Psalms the same way you read Isaiah. You don't read Genesis the same way you read John. And you don't read Revelation the same way you read Proverbs. They are different genres, and because their rules are different for interpretation, we have to read them as such. It makes a difference in how you interpret what is being said. Brad said in his ebook, he said this, which is coming up. There it is. These are all different types of literature, and they each have their own set of rules. If you don't know the genre and its associated rules, you'll likely read the text out of context and misinterpret what is going on. Pretty interesting. So in his book, uh, there's a book called The Baker book of Bible charts, maps, and timelines, which I know you're all, you can't wait to get out of here and go order that, okay? But in that book, John A. Beck, who's the editor, lists eight different genres that show up in the Bible, okay? Eight different genres, 
And uh, you can find different writers and researchers who may label these differently, but these are kind of the categories that we can all agree on. Okay, and those eight different categories are historical narrative, historical narrative, kind of like you said, Christine, it's the stories, the, the historical occurrences, the places, the people, the ideas, the thought, and God uses those so that we can understand how he works in the real physical world and in relationships and in settings, okay? You've got Hebrew poetry. What did I say? How much of the Bible is poetry? How much percentage? 33, you guys are paying attention, you're awesome. 33% of the Bible is poetry, okay? It's, it's, it's abstract ideas expressed in compact bursts of artfully designed, emotion-filled language. Isn't it awesome that our God knows that and operates in that? There is law in Scripture, divine directives that contain little, if any, embellishment. There's wisdom Scripture in the Bible. There is, uh, there is prophecy. There's parables there are, there are uh, letters, which are epistles. This is what Paul wrote in the New Testament. When you look at Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, those are letters, okay? And there's apocalyptic. There's apocalyptic books and scripture, which is a genre that uses wild imagery and longer visual metaphors in order to create hope for those who are facing difficult days. Can you think of a book in the Bible that would, be, that would do that, would qualify? Anyone? Revelation. Almost every one of us who think about it immediately go to Revelation. And John wrote Revelation in a time when the church was being persecuted and killed because of their faith. And he, he wrote out this wild thing that God revealed to him when he went up to heaven. And it's hard to understand a lot of what is in Revelation when you hear about this, this, this animal that's got eyes all over it. And underneath it's, its wings and it's got the head of a lion and the tail. And we read that and we're like, "Woo! what was John on when he wrote that? Okay. And the fact of the matter is that Revelation is a letter to people who are being oppressed that gives them hope for the future. Okay, and these are all different and unique genres, and we recognize that the Bible has these different genres, and we need to begin to read within those genres and its rules so we can understand what the Bible is, was saying back then and what it's saying right now. In the literary discussion, we have to remember the five W's. The five W's. You guys are familiar with those, right? The five W's, which are what? Just shout them. Who, what, when, where, and why? Who, what, when, where, and why? Great questions to apply to Scripture. Who wrote this? Who was it being written to? Where was the writer when they wrote it? Where were the people when they wrote it? What were the circumstances? Why did this person write this letter or this book or this whatever it is? And we apply those five W's, a couple of those W's, a couple of those things we can look at right now. Who and where? Who wrote the book? Where was the book written? Okay, for example, both Ephesians and Colossians were letters that were written by the Apostle Paul while he was in house detention or house jail in Rome. And each of these was written, and, and that by itself impacts those two letters. Ephesians and Colossians, when you read them, they have a lot of things in common, but they also have some very drastic dissimilarities. And those come up because of Paul's relationship with those two different groups. With the Ephesians, Paul had a very close relationship. The Colossians, he didn't really know. He hadn't met them. He was writing to that church there. 
okay? And so when he's writing to the Ephesians, he can be way more direct. He can push buttons on them where they're falling down and they're failing. He can say hard things to the Ephesians because he has a relationship with them. In the Colossians, his letter to the Colossians, it's going to be a little more reserved. It's not going to be as direct because of his relationship with them. When? When was the book written? When was the book written and why does this matter? When, did this, when was this particular letter or book written? For instance, the, the three, uh, first three books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're known as the Synoptic Gospels. Everybody say Synoptic Gospels. Okay, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are very closely related to each other. There's a lot of overlap that happens between those three because th there's a lot of thought that there's a, there is a single common uh, kind of book that either started it all or they're kind of going, using as a, as, as a foundation, okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, when you read John, radically different, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels were written pretty much within decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. The book of John, researchers believe, that was written way later, like when John was in his 90s getting ready to die. And there were people who were like, well, John, we've read these different, you know, we, we know these different accounts. What do you know of Jesus? And so John, we look at him, we go, why is there such a difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and a, just an incredible difference between those three and the book of John? Because researchers believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the time John wrote, they were common knowledge. John didn't have to rewrite what was already written in those. Those were accepted common knowledge for the Christian church at that time. John didn't have to reiterate those things. That's why you find very few miracles written by john in his book okay in his biography very different way deeper way more theological think about how the book of matthew starts the book of matthew starts out with uh, a record of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. And it goes on and on and on through the... That's how Matthew 1 starts. How does John start? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. What? What's that? Right. Right. John didn't need to rewrite what had already been written. John was giving the church something wildly different that they needed in that moment using the life of Jesus and his connection to Jesus to bring a bigger picture, bigger theological picture to what was going on. Crazy, isn't it? But we rarely apply that to our scripture reading. We don't look at John that way. We don't look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke that way, okay? It's crazy. These things impact how we read the scriptures. Literary genre is critical for you to understand when you're reading. When you're reading the book of Proverbs versus the book of Isaiah, whoo, two wildly different genres. You got to know so you can get the most out of it, okay? So, ooh, I got behind. 
So here's the, here's the one you're going to want to take a picture of. I'm going to give you some resources to look up, okay? Uh, resources to check out. That top one, the Bible Project. Phenomenal, phenomenal new media way of, of seeing what's, on, what's in Scripture. I highly encourage you. In fact, they've got a great one about the, what you see up there. The link that I have up there is, is it's an uh, illustration of literary styles, and it's outstanding. In fact, some of what I shared this morning, you're going to go, hey, Doug ripped that off from them. Hey, you're right, I did. Okay, uh, next you got the NIV Cultural Background Bible Study, okay? Uh, I've got these two right here. This is kind of what these things look like. The IVP Bible Background Commentary, Old Testament, New Testament. If you're thinking about going to gym, just buy them both. And you can use them for pressing, okay, to get things going. Uh, I've got the Zondervan Handbook of Biblical Archaeology. Great book, okay. A uh, Bible that I just purchased that I would encourage you to think about uh, is the English Standard Version of the Archaeology Study Bible. These are fascinating and great ways just to begin for you to understand how and why context matters. Once again, this would be a great first investment, okay, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. All right, and this one's free. You can get that one for free and start there, okay? Uh, ESV Archaeological Study Bible, which I just showed you, the handbook on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Uh, and then you're going to want to check these out, okay? Brad's got, Brad does um, videos on his website, uh, the guy who wrote this. And all of his videos have something to do with context. And so I emailed him and I said, hey, Brad, I'm going to do a series based on your book and the six filters. Can you shoot me... Um, some of the videos that you did that would apply directly to the different filters. And he said, yep, no problem. And he sent me an email. So these five, uh, five videos, and they're all anywhere from about 15, they, he tries to do it in a TED Talk style, so 18-ish minutes. Uh, I, I watch one almost every week as part of my devotions. These are great things, but you'll, you'll be able to see these and go, the literary part makes sense. I see it in what he's talking about here, and it begins to stoke that fire in you, okay? Did everybody get the information they wanted, because we got to keep going? I am already three minutes over time, and I've got one more to go through, but fortunately for you, it will be a short one, okay? So, the first filter we went through was what? Say it out loud, what? Literary. You're paying attention. The second filter we're going through is the visual filter, okay? It's one thing to read a historical occurrence and look at a map, and have a description of the surrounding topography for the story. It's another to visually see what the story is about, where it is, where it happened, what was involved, to visually see it. And this made way more sense. I think I've shared this before in church, but I'm going to share it one more time because it's a great illustration. It helps us to understand. I love World War II history, okay? And so one of my favorite books I ever read was the book D-Day by Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose was the, one of the foremost uh, American historians, a lot of great books. But I remember back, like, I think it was in the early 90s, I read this book, D-Day by Stephen Ambrose. And it's a fascinating book. It is straight-up history. 
of D-Day, okay? There's no embellishment. It's just kind of going, but it's, it's just fascinating about what took place leading up to and what happened on D-Day and everything. And it was phenomenal as I, as I read it, and I remember just, you know, you read about how when the, the, the allies landed on the beaches of Normandy and the, the troop carriers lowered those ramps, the German guns literally would just start mowing them off. They didn't even get out of the, out of the troop carrier. They just killed them while they were there. And I remember reading that going, oh, my word. Next page, right? And then I remember watching Saving Private Ryan. And Stephen Ambrose was a consultant on that movie. And I remember watching the ramp drop and the German guns start mowing down those soldiers before they ever got a foot out. They never even stepped on France. And I remember watching those guys, they were wearing packs that were anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds on their back. And as they're trying to get away from the German gunfire, they bailed over the side of the troop carrier. And they had so much weight on them, they went straight to the bottom and many of them drowned. And I remember watching that and going, oh my word, oh my word, it was real. Book? clinical seeing it made it real and that's the truth in the bible when we can begin to see what we're talking about okay uh for example when we read the story in mark chapter 2 fantastic story in mark chapter 2 where, where these guys, Jesus is this rock star rabbi, and he's at somebody's house, and he's speaking, and these guys are trying to get their friend who's paralyzed in to see Jesus. But there's so many people inside the house, and more than likely outside the house with the windows open, it's so packed in, there's no way that these guys are going to get in to see Jesus. So what do they do? What do they do? They go up on the roof. The roof. The roof. Okay, they get up on the roof, and they dig a hole in the roof to lower their friend. Some of you are like, please don't ever do that again, all right? They dig a hole in the roof, and they lower their friend in front of Jesus, and Jesus heals them. And we just read that and go, huh, how about that? That's pretty cool. But when we see a picture of what those houses look like, it changes our perspective of what happened. Because a lot of us, our picture of a house is like this. That's my house last night, okay? And you look at that, and it's like, ain't nobody climbing up on that roof to lower somebody in because you'll get through into the attic or into the garage. You're, you're, and not only that, do you see the angle of that roof? There's nobody that's going to, they're not going to get a, you take a paralyzed guy up there, he's going to roll off, right? And he's going to die, it's one way to heal him. He gets to go to heaven, all right? But nobody's going to do this. Nobody's going to go into that. That's the, but that's what we think. We think of that kind of house. But the houses in Capernaum and around Galilee in that point in time look way more like this. They were more flat roof, all right? And they were literally probably seven, eight feet tall. And you could, and, and, and the fact of the matter is, you could either boost someone up there, or a lot of times, there was just a, a, a ladder that went to the roof. 
And so now it looks radically different. And to understand that the roof wasn't made out of wood structuring, and then you had plywood, three, you know, half-inch plywood, and then on top of that you had, no, it was made out of mud, and it was made out of sticks, and some were made out of tile, and all of a sudden you get the idea that it's not that hard to dig through that roof. To get that open, to lower somebody in to see Jesus. Visually, it changes how we view the scriptures. It makes the context of the Bible radically different. Uh, one of my favorite places when we went to Israel in May, I had an opportunity to go and went with a number of people from here at Lighthouse. And um, one of my favorite places was En Gedi. And on your way to En Gedi, uh, and Getty is, is um, a, an oasis. But on your way there, you drive through the lowest point on earth. It's past the end of the Dead Sea, in desert area. It is a dry and thirsty land. It is a dry wasteland. I mean, there was, there was literally, as we were driving, there was a ghost town there. It was like people went there and said, hey, this might be a good idea. That was dumb. Why'd we do that? And they left. It's in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of heat, in the middle of dusty, dirty desert. And in the middle of this desert is an oasis. Flow of water and green. And in your mind right now, you're kind of picturing it. But the fact of the matter is that it looks way different when you can see a picture of it. I almost feel it right now. In a dry and barren land, there's life-giving water. And this place is one of the places where David and his men would come for refuge to a place like this. In a dry and thirsty, barren and weary land. And all of a sudden, when God talks about streams of living water. The Jews who were there, who heard Jesus, or heard the prophets, or heard the writers, or read what they said, began to picture a place like this in a dry and weary land. When you see the pictures, it changes your perspective of the word. Okay? So, to help you out, here are some resources for you. Grab those cameras, take pictures, okay? Uh, Archaeology Illustrated, Bible Places, Holy Land Photos, uh, a visual guide to Bible events by uh, Martin Beck and Hansen. And then you've got three more videos by Brad. Uh, and these three particularly help us to understand the visual aspect and why that's important to our Bible reading. Okay? I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. And uh, we're going to uh, close with a, uh, with a song. But I want to encourage you. Here's your homework for this week. Ready? Everybody? Eyes right here. This is your homework. You're like, oh, man, come on. No, no, no. This is your first step. This is your first start in beginning to understand context and why it matters. So this week, I'm going to encourage you to do a number of things. Number one is if you don't have this book, download it and start reading it. Okay? Number two, those different videos that I gave you by Brad those different videos 
I'm just going to encourage you this week to watch one a day. I think I gave you eight or nine. And I think you're going to watch them and go, whoa, that's crazy. I never saw that in Scripture, right? But you will start seeing it when you invest the time to start learning context. Because context matters. It mattered back then. It matters right now. The more we understand the past and who this was written to and why and how, we understand what God is trying to say to us today. So here's what we do. When you open up your scriptures, the first thing you do is pray. Holy Spirit, prepare my heart and my mind to latch on to what you have for me today. Number two, you ask the questions. You ask the question, why is this important? What's important in this passage of scripture and why is it important? And then you start getting into context. Stand up with me, please. Father, we thank you for this time together. Glory to you, God. We praise you and adore you that you have given us the words of life and truth, that the Bible is living and breathing and active. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I am so pumped about learning what your word says in its context so I can understand what life means to me, what your relationship is to me, what my, my relationship is to you, what your expectations of me are, what overflowing life means, and how I was created on purpose for a purpose. And all of those, these things can be found when I begin to live in the power of the Holy Spirit and understand your word better in its context. God, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.